Hello, and welcome to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. My name is Jeff Sankoff, an emergency physician, multiple Ironman finisher, and your host, the TriDoc, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I think that I have another great show for you today, but before I get to that, I want to begin with what I think is an exciting development and what I hope some of you will think is an exciting opportunity. I discovered triathlon almost 20 years ago, and since that time, have said many, many times, including on this show, that triathlon changed my life. Over those years, I have gone from newbie to middle of the packer to top age grouper to world championship qualifier and have experienced all kinds of ups and downs along the way. I've always gotten so much from the sport and from those who I have met while participating in it, and I have always tried to give back as much as I could. As a medical volunteer at Ironman Canada or the Colfax Marathon here in Denver, as a medical editor for Triathlete Magazine, or even through this podcast, I have tried to leverage my medical education and experience as a triathlete to give back to the sport and to those in the sport in the small ways that I have. For me, the next logical step was to pursue coaching certification, and I am excited to report that as of earlier this month, I completed and received my certification as an Ironman certified coach. I believe that with my extensive experience in the sport and with my training as a physician, I am uniquely positioned to help triathletes of all skill levels and experience to take the next step and get to whatever they choose their next level to be. If you're interested in learning more, I invite you to visit www.tridoccoaching.com or send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com so we can discuss your needs and how we might work together to help you get where you want to go in the sport. I'm really excited to take this next step and hopeful that there are some listeners who will want to join me. For now, though, it's time for a really fine episode of the TriDoc Podcast. If you haven't already left me a review or a rating wherever you download this, I hope that you'll consider doing so. They really do help. Matt Steinmetz joins me to talk all things related to BikeFit and how he has moved into the world of the UCI Pro Tour with his custom bike accessory company, 51 Speed Shop. The triathlete Routard goes to Cali for a review and travel guide for the Oceanside 70.3 race with special guest Lucy Brash. First up, though, I revisit the female athlete triad. In a conversation with Dr. Spencer Tomberg, we explore how the triad has come to be reevaluated and renamed as the Reduced Energy Deficiency Syndrome and what this means for women and men who are so afflicted. A couple of episodes ago, in episode six, I talked about the female athlete triad and how it combines issues related to diet, menstruation, and bone density, and how those effects are so important in young females training at high intensity and how it can lead to problems later in life. I was then written by one of my listeners to alert me to the fact that this also exists in a different form in male athletes in the form of a reduced energy deficiency syndrome called REDS. And joining me today to discuss this further is a colleague of mine, Dr. Spencer Tomberg. Spencer did his residency in emergency medicine here uh, in Denver at Denver Health and then went on to do a fellowship in sports medicine at the University of Utah. He's now come back to Denver where he is practicing in uh, many ways as an emergency physician uh, in our urgent care clinic as well, and he runs a sports medicine clinic. But today he's here to talk specifically about Red Syndrome, and uh, welcome to the TriDoc Podcast, Spencer. Thanks for having me. Female athlete triad has been known for many years and studied really in depth over time. So sometimes in around 
the mid-2000s, people started to realize that men were having the same problem that women were having. And they weren't seeing it come up clinically as well, but they could see the same kind of disordered eating that was going on around, um, around sports. And so they decided to try to expand the idea of really what this low energy state is. And that's where REDS really came out. And so the big paper that seems to come out of this came out in 2014 from the um, IOC, and it's called the IOC Consensus Statement on Relative Energy Deficiency in Sports. And that paper really kind of outlined what they were looking at and tried to set up some differences between the female athlete triad and um, uh and what they were seeing kind of across the board in men as well, too. We know, of course, you know, being men, it's going to be a lot harder to clinically diagnose because there's not going to be the menstrual disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, I presume that's also why this was something that took longer to identify as a syndrome. It, it had to do with that, but it also had to do with the, the difference in the bone changes. And I think that's one of the big things is that they, there's a lot more bony changes, a lot more stress fractures that happen in women. And, uh, and so that part of the clinical picture also became way more apparent uh, to practitioners that they weren't seen as much in men. They still see it, but not on the same level as they did with women. Sure. And again, that has to do with the hormonal changes yep. because uh, women, as they get into the disordered eating, it affects their hormonal balances, causes them to cease menstruation, and that has the carry-on effects of affecting their bone mineral density. Um, men... They have the disordered eating. They don't necessarily have any changes in their hormonal effects. They don't get the bone mineral density changes. And, of course, this is why it's not showing up as, the, as clearly as it was in women with the, the stress fractures and everything else. My question, and, and this is what, you know, what I found in my own trying to research this, is why is it not just an eating disorder? Like, why is it a syndrome, and why is it not just referred to as an eating disorder? That's a good, that's a good question. So there's, there's a whole spectrum of what people look at in this. And so part of this is that most of, the, most of the idea of body and weight management starts healthy. So, you, you know, you start off um, on trying to improve your performance. You start thinking about your diet. You start thinking about what you're taking in. You start thinking about balancing how much you take in and how much you're putting out. And that usually starts pretty healthy. And then sometimes people, um, sometimes people take that to a next step without even thinking about it and just make bad decisions. So maybe they say like, oh, I read that apples are really good for you. And so therefore I'm just going to eat apples all the time because I'm going to get strong eating apples. Now that might not be a good decision, but that's not pathologically a bad decision. Um, the next step down from that becomes eating disorders where it's really becomes, um, Pathologic. It becomes pathologic, and all of those can become harmful if they're not if they're not done right. But the eating disorder really becomes where you really start to manage your food, either whether it's on the anorexic scale where you're just not taking stuff in, or bulimia is a really big issue. Um, some of the studies, especially looking at uh, sports where uh, weight management is has to be super tight, and the ones that seem to come up on this a lot are like jockeys. And this is not for triathlon, but j jockeys are interesting because they have to be weighed before and after the race, and they actually have a special term for jockeys bulimia that's called flipping, so where they eat a lot and then they make themselves vomit uh, to make sure that they're going to make weight. And so even within that sport, there's like special terminology for their jockey bulimia, wow. which is kind of interesting. Wow. Um, okay, so yeah. um, when we talk about REDS, yep. uh, let's 
define it clinically. Um, Just to be clear, eating disorder is a clinically defined entity. Uh, It tends to be defined both medically and by the DSM uh, criteria, so so psychiatrically. It, It generally is disordered eating, but in the context of a disordered body image. Mm -hmm. So let's define the relative energy deficiency syndrome clinically. So the the, uh, consensus statement defines it as um, dysfunction in five, six areas. So the six areas of dysfunction are uh, changes in metabolic rate, changes in menstruation function, changes in bone health, changes in immunity, changes in protein synthesis, and then changes in cardiovascular health. And so it's those six entities together. And they, in their paper, they actually kind of build this as a kind of a hub with spokes going out and that they're saying that the low energy stores are what kind of drive all of this process. Okay. But if menstruation's in there, how does this affect a man? Well, so this is, that's part of the problem. And there's actually, when this paper came out, there was a big repudiation paper that came out in the British Journal of Sports Medicine that said like, you guys are pushing this way too far because almost everything in the paper deals with women because most of the studies have been done on women. And even when they're going through this, uh, with the science where we're at right now, a lot of the stuff that, that pertains to men is still pretty theoretical. So what we do know, there's some pretty big, here's the big differences that we do know. We do know that women's, uh, big hormone changes with estrogen and progesterone, and then men's is with testosterone. So with overtraining, men's testosterone levels definitely go down. And with overtraining, women's estrogen levels will go down too. Now, what happens with estrogen is that estrogen actually keeps the body from breaking down bone. So if you lose estrogen, the osteoclasts, which are the little cells that go up and tear up bone, they get overactive and they start to break down bone to, to get more energy. Testosterone works on the other side. So testosterone works to help you build up bone strength. And so if you have low testosterone, it's not that your bones break down, it's that you don't build them up as much. And so that's one of the big differences that we see between men and women. And that's one of the things that the science actually shows is different. But really, the rest of the science is still really developing in terms of what this does. So it sounds to me like REDS is almost an evolution of the female athlete triad now becoming known more as reds. That's exactly. That's and, exactly what and, it is. And that it's being applied to men, but much more conservatively because it's much harder to diagnose in men. I think it's hard. I'm not sure it's more conservative. It's just we don't know as much about it. It's that there's 30 years of science behind the women's part, and they're still getting up to speed on what's going on with um, men and how that affects them. And a lot of this is probably going to play out when we look at, you know, when the risk factors are cardiovascular health, you're not going to see that in three years of science. You're going to see that 20 years down the road. Right. Um, And so... And uh, we know from looking at studies in the past on perimenopausal and postmenopausal women that... uh, the uh, reproductive hormones, specifically estrogen, have impacts on cardiovascular health. Yep. So we might anticipate that women with REDS are going to be susceptible to earlier onset of cardiovascular problems if they have this, you know, energy deficiency or this disordered eating. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's the idea, and along with it that. Um that men are going to say the same thing because of their different their different hormonal changes. And I think the big goal behind all of this is to not isolate men from the problem of disordered eating in sports. Sure. And that the 
that the female athlete triad had it in its name of this is a risk for women. And they're trying to branch that out so we can make sure that everybody's aware of the risk factors that they're bringing into their, their competition when they're doing that. Right. And that's an excellent point because, uh, I know that, uh, again, having heard from listeners that, uh, there are some pretty high level men who've had, uh, been really seriously impacted by this and have some pretty harrowing tales about it. Yeah. Um, now do we have any sense of like the prevalence of this? So I tried to find things on prevalence and it's not easy. So when we go to, there's some studies that have looked at disordered eating. Um, and when they looked at elite athletes, it, they broke this down into adults and to adolescents. So in adult women, the um, rate of disordered eating is about 20%, and in, in elite men, it's 8%. Um, the adolescent rates are lower for both of those. So for elite female adolescents, it's 13%. In elite male adolescents, it's 3%. So, so that's interesting because that's not what I found looking at female athlete triads specifically, yeah. but... Um, probably the methodology was different. My The study that I had looked at was really based on surveys. Yep. And in survey results, uh, they seemed to suggest it was higher in adolescent girls than it was in adult women. I don't, yeah. I don't, I yeah, mean, no, I had just different methodology. And, it, and it's sure. also where you look, right? So um, if you're looking at the sports like cheerleading, uh, they looked at diving, gymnastics, those rates are much higher. Dancers, um, the rates of secondary amenorrhea in dancers is about 69%. Um, and in runners, it's about 65%. So it's really sport-based yeah. where you're going to yeah. see this. Yeah, and that was something areas. I had seen as well. Yeah. And again, because in men, you don't have something as, you know, that you can really hang your hat on like amenorrhea. Yeah it's really hard to identify. So yeah. you're going on some really, you know, subtle kind of characteristics and clues. And I think that's why we don't have really good information about the prevalence of this. Yeah. Okay, so then what about, um, we don't know long-term effects yet. I mean, yep. we do see it in women with, with uh, bone issues, uh, yep. a lot of stress fractures. Are we seeing that with men? So the it's interesting. There's different sports where this comes up in different ways. So for men in running stress fractures with, um, low energy. So if you're in a low energy state, I don't know the, the exact numbers cause I didn't see them, but the stress fracture rate is higher. Um, in rowers, rowers are actually pretty interesting because there's lightweight divisions and open weight divisions. And the cutoff there is 70 kilograms for men and 57 kilograms for women. And they find that the lower weight rate guys tend to be the ones that really restrict a lot. And um, they have lower bone mineral density. And the fractures they get are interesting. They get stress fractures of the ribs from the pulling action. Wow. Yeah. And so um, those rib fractures go up um, quite a bit in the lightweight rowers compared to the uh, heavyweight rowers. And that their testosterone levels go down um, as well, too, compared to the uh, heavier weight rowers. So that's a pretty good way to be able to compare side to side um, uh, there. The other things that are kind of interesting when they've looked at this um, are in combat sports where people have cyclic eating cyclic eating cycles, and so they have to drop weight and put weight on. And what they've found is that those guys actually have higher bone mineral density, um, and so it seems that the I think what I think what it kind of points to is that if you you can restrict in a short period of time as long as you're getting those calories back later. Right. And the body might not always have uh, the same kind of detrimental experience. And also they do a lot of impact uh, 
Right, and right. So, and we know that impact has a positive effect on bone mineral. Yeah, things. exactly. And on the other side of that, cyclists get hurt from this because um, they do not have basically any impact with it. And so when they look at the Z-scores, which is the way that we look at bone mineral density, in cyclists, their lumbar spines are usually very low. And it's probably a couple, it's, it's probably the coupling of the um, low energy that they're taking in along with the lack of impact that they're having. Okay. We understand why this would show up in a woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, she's going to get injured from a stress fracture. She's going to realize she's uh, missed her period. How is a guy going to get hip to the fact that he's got this? Uh, What what is going to, you know, tune him in to the fact that he's got this issue? It's tough. I think most guys don't know. And um, that it's more... So one might be that you're picking up a lot of infections easily. And I know you talked a little bit about the respiratory infection syndrome. Part of that might be um, that. I think it's more that you're putting yourself at long-term risk without seeing, without having the markers earlier on that something could be going on with it. Um, I know that when you get on the extreme side of the spectrum, you start getting into overtraining syndrome. That's where you really see performance going down, lack of recovery. And they talk about, they talk about that in this literature too, that the, that uh, decreased recovery um, from training and decreased performance are signs of that. I think that's where you're teetering on that edge of overtraining syndrome, which is on, which is definitely on the spectrum, but probably farther down the road of it. Yeah. And I, I, I know from reading a couple of, um, you know, personal stories of uh, male athletes that had this, that was really how they clued in, was just that they were suddenly not able to perform, they were having significant sleep issues, they uh, just uh, showing all the signs of overtraining when they weren't actually overtrained, and suddenly someone clued into the fact that (laughs) you're not eating anything. And so, uh, and and it it does, it just becomes that disordered, disordered eating on the spectrum of the eating disorder without having the psychiatric component where the person is so fixed fixated on their body weight and it's just not getting in the calories to sustain the training that they're doing. Yep. Um, okay. So, um, at the end of the day, we've discussed in the past how women can deal with this by simply increasing their caloric intake. Mm-hmm. Is the situation similar for men? It's basically the same. I mean, this is just simple addition, right? I mean, it's how much you're putting off and how much you're taking in and you have to balance that. So the, um, the recommendations are to take in about three to six hundred more kilocalories um, uh, per day, per day, and to see how that does. And you have to kind of play your energy balance based off that. But that's not a ton. I mean, we're really kind of on a fine line here where people can go get more to a healthy state by, yeah. you know. And we talked, uh, or I talked when I when I discussed a you know female athlete triad. I, I discussed how you know. <laughs> The, you know, a woman who has this is going to have to put some weight on. Yeah. Um, and I imagine it's going to be similar for men. They're going to have to put some weight on. I mean, your, your body just, you know, you may want to get to a certain weight, but your body wants you to be at a different weight. You're going to have to face that. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you are just going to perform better at an ideal weight, whatever it is that your body is set at. Uh, you may, you know, listen, I want to be 140 pounds, but uh, if for me to get to 140 pounds, I'm not going to perform well. And so I have to be satisfied with being the weight I am. I mean, I could probably lose a little bit, but, uh, you know, at some point there's going to be this tipping point where you lose more weight, you suddenly don't perform. And I think that that's what people are probably faced with when they have this is figuring out 
what the weight is that they need to be at in order to perform and not going below that. Yeah, and I think, I think that's exactly right from the performance side. And I think the other thing is we have to come back to what's important. And we have to come back to the idea of why we do sports and why we compete and whether the short-term goal of moving up a couple spots um, or, you know, bettering your time by five or 10 minutes is worth the long-term consequences. And it's easier. It's an easier calculation for some people than for others. Yeah. I mean, I think I can, I can own up to that. Right. I mean, for someone like me, who's been on the cusp for a couple of years and, and has been within reach of the podium at, a, at an Ironman race and within reach of a, <clears throat> within reach of a Kona slot, I can see, you know, the, the, the tantalizing, you know, the dangers of, of, of like, you know, oh, if I just lose a couple more pounds, yeah. um, and then, you know, there's the, you know, elite athlete who is, you know, maybe on the cusp of sponsorship and things like that. And it, you can lose perspective of those long-term consequences, but I think that's why it's so important to be surrounded by other people who have their feet on the ground and are able to take the, a global look. And that's why a coach is important or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, family members to be able to say, hey, you know, this is about more than just that podium, about more than just that slot. Yeah. So, and yeah. I think I think what I think is interesting is if you think about this with like mountain climbers and you see the top of the peak, that's that really dangerous time where you have to make sure you can get down off the mountain and just pushing yourself to the top doesn't mean that you get back home. And it's the same with any kind of racing that you're that you're doing is that long term goal has to be built into this right. for overall health. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, that's an excellent conversation about a complicated and uh, still somewhat nebulous topic. Spencer Tomberg is an emergency and sports medicine physician here in Denver, Colorado. He joined me today for a follow-up conversation on both female athlete triad and the relative energy deficiency syndrome as it pertains to both women and men. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today, Spencer. Yeah, thanks for having me. My guest today is renowned in the cycling and triathlon worlds as one of the go-to consultants for bike fitting, coaching, aerodynamics, and ergonomic optimization. Matt Steinmetz has worked with some of the biggest names in the professional cycling and triathlon worlds, with the like of cycling pro tour teams AG2R La Mondiale, Team Sky, and professional triathletes Heather Jackson, Craig Alexander, and Marinda Carfay, just to name a few. Matt pursued his education, including a master's in exercise physiology and human performance at Ball State University. After completing his education and moving to Boulder, Colorado, he began to work with Retool, advising in the development of their fit systems. While there, Matt began to foster and develop advisory and coaching relationships with athletes that would go on to win world championship titles under his guidance. It was shortly after that time when Matt was dubbed by Inside Triathlon Magazine as the speed technician and named one of the top 10 most influential people in triathlon. If that wasn't enough, he started his own company, 51 Speed Shop, and opened his coaching, bike fitting, and consulting services to age group athletes. Most recently, 51 Speed Shop has begun to develop and manufacture bicycle components. Those products focus on integrating the bike's contact points with the rider and have been used by AG2R La Mondiale in the Tour de France, as well as by many pro triathletes. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks for having me. We know that the bike is by far the longest leg of the triathlon. It's where you're going to spend most of your time during a race and most of your time training for your race. How important, then, is a proper bike fit in the process of purchasing a bike? Well, I always say that 
on 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 the websites I'll talk about like don't make the five thousand dollar mistake on buying a bike that necessarily doesn't fit you very well. But also I've always said that a proper bike fit is the biggest performance upgrade you can make to your bike. So the human body is roughly like when we look at the whole the whole system and the and the whole uh, drag equation, it makes up about eighty percent of the the resistive forces or aerodynamic drag that um, you know we're trying to overcome to move forward. And the whole premise of a you know a time trial position is is speed, and I always define speed as comfort plus power plus aerodynamics equals speed and comfort power aerodynamics. That is the order of priority. That, uh, is what I look for when I'm, uh, fitting someone to their bike. You know, you see a lot of people out there who really are going for that aerodynamics above everything. In fact, uh, you read on a lot of message boards, aero is everything. Uh, you know, what do you say to people who who just like come in and are just like, look, I've got to be more arrow. I've got to be more arrow. Yeah, to kind of go back, I base everything off of off of that equation. So I'll define comfort as um, the ability to sustain your position for the duration of your event. And so I think for for many people, comfort can be relative. And the key word there is sustain. So, for instance, if I'm going to work with a track cyclist that is is going to, um, you know, he's riding, you know, 10k or 1k or whatever whatever the length of the event, if if the position is so uncomfortable that they can't hold it for that duration, we've failed. So you can you can kind of see that the only difference there is the duration of the event. So people that potentially have a very aggressive position. And they can hold it for 40k. They might not be able to hold it for 180k. So if someone is a, is an Ironman athlete, once again, we are looking at that as the number one priority: being able to hold that position. The next is is power, and the way I define power is the ability to apply force to the pedals without restriction. So this is where you know, saddle height and bar position and that sort of thing can, um, you know, reduce or remove that restriction. I don't believe that I can move someone's saddle up five mils or move it down five mils and give someone, you know, 20 extra Watts. But I do, the goal of, of the fit is once that person's comfortable making sure that the, that the contact points are positioned in a way within a, you know, kind of a universally accepted range of biomechanical norms that allow that person, you know, every chance to kind of push on the pedals and create power. And then the, the end goal is aerodynamics. And from there, that's where we can, you know, look at maybe hand height or elbow width, or we can start using, you know, arrow helmets, but that is that is optimizing shape and frontal surface area to reduce um, drag. So I'm not going to sit there and and compromise comfort for power, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna compromise power for for aerodynamics. So that's kind of the equation that I use, and it seems to fit 
across the spectrum of, of, of events. I've worked with, you know, pro tour guys that are trying to win the tour de France on their TT positions. And they'll tell me if something's not comfortable. So it doesn't, I think it doesn't matter if you're just an, a recreational age grouper that's trying to finish an Ironman or, you know, your local sprint triathlon, or you're trying to win the tour de France or you're trying to win Ironman Hawaii. Comfort is still the number one driver to a lot of this stuff. And the beauty of the TT position is the adaptability of, of comfort. So for instance, if you've not ridden your TT bike or your triathlon bike for a year and you hop on the same position that you'd been riding for the past few seasons, it's not going to feel very comfortable to you because it's unnatural. And, but the beauty is, is the human body will adapt to that position. So, um, you know, that's, that's the best part of the, about the, about, um, the TT bike is a position that might not necessarily be comfortable to start with. You can train your body to adapt to that. Okay. That, that's actually a really interesting point because that brings up a couple of questions. Uh, the first one I have is, you know, the fit process is a little bit brief. I mean, it's maybe an hour or two hours. Uh, the race mm-hmm. can be significantly longer. So how do you know that the position you're in that might feel comfortable during the fit is actually going to be comfortable for the duration? And my second question relates to what you just said about adaptation. Uh, somebody who wants to really be aero might not feel so comfortable at the time that they're doing the fit. But like you said, they, the adaptation piece, maybe they feel like they can adapt to it. What do you say to that? Yeah, so um, for, the first, for the first question, you don't really know. Uh, from my experience, I have a general. I have a you know generally good idea about what can um, be tolerated on the road. But what I also do is I always tell the the client that they're as big of a part of the fit process um, as I am. I need I need that feedback. And oftentimes, if they're like, "Oh, this position feels awesome," I'll say, "Well, let's hold on." you know, before we start, you know, waving the, waving the victory flag, you need to get out there and you need to ride this thing on the road. And because, you know, as a, as a bike fitter, you don't always get it right. The first time there's a, oftentimes I don't get it right on the first time. And what I do is I try to, I try to warn my clients about, um, the adaptation that they are going to have to, to maybe go through. Cause if I don't, if, if, if I tell them, like we've either they haven't been on the TT bike for a while, while, or we've made some drastic changes, and I don't let them know of some of the the growing pains or the discomforts that they may experience riding this position. And I just tell them that this position's great, and then they go out on the road, and an hour in, they're uncomfortable. They're going to think that I don't know what I'm talking about. So I do a I, I try to do a pretty good job to say, okay, look you know, you're going to have a lot more weight on the front end. Your, your neck might bother you because you're having to crank your, you know, your head up to be able to see down the road. If we have the, the saddle positioned appropriately with an anterior, um, you know, anterior pelvic rotation, you know, we're, we're really coming off our true sit bones and we're going on to, you know, our ischium or our pubic rami and we've not bared weight there before. So you might have some saddle discomfort or saddle um, soreness. So the reality is, is you do your best in the fit studio 
And then I always tell people, get this thing out on the road, give it some time to adapt. And if you're experiencing any pain or you're still struggling with um, the adaptation phase, please let me know because I'm in the best position to help, you know, remedy any of your, any of your issues. And then, you know, it kind of leads into your second question is oftentimes you might have an end goal of what you think is achievable with someone's bike position, but maybe you go halfway or you go 75% of the way there, let them adapt to it and then go the rest of the way. And a lot of times that's just kind of getting a read on the person. Sometimes I'll just go all the way there. Um, but if based on some of the feedback during the fit process, it'll give me a good indication if, if the person's someone who can go all the way there, or if it's just too different that I need to kind of split the difference and let them get used to that new normal before going to, um, the, the end goal. That makes sense. And uh, I, I think that progression and the serial kind of fitting not only makes a lot of sense, but it also intuitively sounds like something that a cyclist could do and really see their performance change to show how the fit is really playing a role in, mm -hmm. in how their performance changes. Now I've done uh, I've done things both ways. Uh, when I initially started, I bought a bike and uh, didn't get fit, and then tried to get the bike fit to me, and found out that was really not the way to go. So the second time I got a bike, I actually did the whole fit first, and was much more comfortable on my second bike. But there are a lot of people out there who just don't have that kind of budget. They're going to be out there looking for a used bike or something that fits them as best possible. In that kind of scenario, how can you as a bike fitter help that person either choose or be better fit to a used bike? Yeah, you can still kind of go through the same process where you can use a fit bike, have the person come in, find um, a position that is within, you know, within what I... I, I struggle to say this is your perfect bike position because I always tell someone that you could come in once a month and I could make a tweak to it and it would still be okay. Um, so I would tell the person come in, do a fit on a fit bike and have what I would call um, fit coordinates or, or contact points. And then what I'd have them do is say, hey, go shopping, see what's, see what's out there online before you buy it let's check back in and let's see if, uh, that bike will get to, um, you know, the fit coordinates that, that we arrived at during the, the fit process. So you can still, I think you can still follow the same process to do that. Um, but I still think you have to get a fit, a fit first. I mean, you can make general assumptions of looking at someone's height, you know, what, what range that they might be in. You can, I don't really think you can transfer road bike size to a TT bike size, but that's still the process that I would recommend is, you know, to come in and invest in getting a fit on a fit bike to arrive at some fit coordinates. Because even if you're buying something used online, you're still going to be spending over $500 on a bike. And if you buy one that's not the right size that can't even achieve the position that you're looking for, you've wasted your money and you're, you're not going to be able to get the best. You're not gonna be able to get the most speed for your effort. If you're in a suboptimal, uh, if you're riding a suboptimal uh, position on a bike. 
And I think there's more to it than that. Uh, I think a lot of listeners out there are going to be thinking, well, you know, here's a bike fitter telling me I have to get fit. So there's something self-serving to that. But I know better, and I know you do as well. How, how can a poor fit actually lead to injuries in cyclists? I mean, the human body is amazing. It can, you see it all the time. People can adapt to bad bike positions. I mean, you see it with runner, you know, there can be, there can be great runners who have bad running form and some people are just more susceptible to being able to get away from that than, than others. Other people, you know, they, they may have some anterior knee pain and they're struggling to figure out what the cause of it is. And they come in to, uh, you know, for a bike fit and I'm not, you know, I'm by no means a, a medical professional and I always try to stay in my lane, but there's some common things that you can do, um, as a bike fitter that can oftentimes alleviate certain ailments that cyclists have. So what I always say is, you know, I'm going to do a neutral bike fit on you and most more oftentimes than not that fixes or alleviates, um, a lot of people's, uh, pain and, and discomfort via looking at, you know, different contact points. So for instance, someone may come in and they have anterior knee pain and their saddles very, very low. And so, um, you know, that's kind of a common ailment, uh, for anterior knee pain. And all I would have to do is, you know, raise the saddle and then potentially look at crank length for someone to reduce that range of motion at the knee. So most, most ailments on a bike are fit related in my opinion. Um, because you know, we're, we're all asymmetric. We, you know, you, uh, most oftentimes we can, our body, even, even with a good position, if we have some sort of, you know, leg length discrepancy or, you know, tibial torsion or pelvic obliquity, or we have something that's just not uniform. Usually our bodies still will adapt on the bike to allow us to be able to pedal without, uh, this restriction. So that's where you'll see people maybe, you know, shifting off to the right or twisting to the right or changing their, uh, you know, their ankling, you know, movements to, you know, to make up for a leg length discrepancy of some sort. And oftentimes I won't as a, as a bike fitter and I see this kind of stuff and people are asymptomatic, meaning they don't have pain from this. I don't touch it because I would be very scared to, because they've adapted and found a way around that, um, that asymmetry that I would cause pain by trying to fix it. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff with a, with a bike fit where when we see low back pain, knee pain, neck pain, and usually probably, you know, in the wrist and hands, all from bikes being, um, ill fitting for them. So you mentioned a couple of things uh, that you commonly will change seat height, uh, crank length, things like that. Are there other common tweaks that you, you know, will quickly go to, to try and improve people's fit or even better, like improve their aerodynamics? Yeah, I have these pillars that I, that I go by and I always say that there's a right way to sit on the saddle. So what I'll first do is if I see someone and I cannot see any saddle exposed behind them, 
I know that they are positioning themselves in a way to protect soft tissue from the nose of the saddle. So the reason why we see saddle behind riders on a, in a TT position is not because they're sitting on the nose. It's because they have anterior pelvic rotation. And once that, that pelvic is, is anteriorly or forwardly rotated, it exposes, um, saddle behind them. And, and the shoulders and the pelvis need to rotate in harmony to, to create like this, this neutral pelvic orientation. So the first thing I look at is, are they postured on the saddle correctly? Because the saddle is the most important part of the bike fit. If you do not have that right, it's hard to, it's hard to start making adjustments to the front end because if they're, if they're on a, if they're on the wrong saddle, they may be sitting off the back of it, which is going to make the front end seem very, very long. So all of a sudden you change the saddle and correct for that. And then everything else falls in place. Then, um, on the front end, I say, so I always say there's a right way to sit on the saddle. There's a right way to, to support, uh, your upper body on the front end of the TT bike. So we have all this weight on the front end of the bike and we need to really support that in a relaxed manner and just drive a lot of that weight into the, into the arm cup and the arm pad. So I like, you know, the arm elbow to be on that pad. I don't like it when people put the pad in the middle of their forearm because they've, you know, created a fulcrum point, which has to be leveraged. And, you know, usually that's leveraged at the hand and that creates tension all the way through the wrist and up into the shoulder and to the neck. So I want to see the arm on the, on the pad, maybe just a tiny, tiny bit of elbow off the back if the, if the person prefers that. And then I want the shifter in, I want the shifter in the hand with a really neutral wrist orientation. So what I think that that does, so those are the pillars that I set. And I think that allows someone to really be, you know, relaxed and, and supported on the bike. And then the last thing that I look at is overall, um, posture aboard the bike. So the thing I look for there is what I call neutral spine. So neutral spine is, you know, I'm sitting in a chair right now and I'm looking straight ahead. That's neutral spine. The same thing like if you're standing. Well, when we rotate into the aero position, if we maintain neutral spine, we're looking down at the front wheel. So most people, they crank their necks up and they have their entire face uh, pointing forward. And it just it really sticks their, you know, their head uh, up in the air. And I call that periscope head. So what I prefer is for people to keep that neutral spine where they're looking down, then just lift their chin up rather than lifting their neck and their head. And that actually creates the least amount of tension. And then the only, the only thing that we have to work around there is, you know, the safety aspect of it. Cause you can see, you can see very well, uh, with that way, but your peripheral is a little bit limited. So I always advise people to just, you know, kind of go to periscope head, really, you know, survey, um, your surroundings and then back into this, uh, neutral spine chin up position. And I don't, I don't usually advise people to ever, to ever, you know, look down when they're on that. So those, those are my, those are my pillars. And those are the things I look for immediately when someone's on the, on the bike. And, you know, the saddle's the number one thing I go to first. 
Tell me uh, about 51 Speed Shop. What kind of products are you making and uh, how's that been working for you? Yeah, so that the, the the company we launched it in june of 2018 and we really started the project working with the ag2r team and we were we it was kind of a co-design um front end on the factor slick tt bike and the the main thing that we wanted to accomplish first um was you know was taking our you know, fit knowledge over the past, you know, 10 years. And I, you know, I've worked with, um, you know, a few other people that have, have been in the bike industry, um, for a long time. And we, we were starting to kind of look at what it is that we don't like about the products that we see every day. Cause I've always said a bike fitter is the bridge between, you know, product, uh, engineering and manufacturing and client satisfaction, so for, you know, the past 10 years, you know, we've, we've been in the middle of that. So we get to see what products look like after someone's had them for three or four or five years. And we also get to see, you know, how the, how the human is interacting with those products. So what we did is we started um, first with the arm cups and extensions, and we used, uh, you know, 3D printing to be able to start building extension shapes to, you know, the rider's outstretched hand in a neutral wrist orientation rather than them having to, you know, kind of conform to whatever extension uh, is coming on their bike. We built them up to the rider. And we also really looked at, um, the arm cup. So our arm cup has been one of the best selling products that we have. And it, it's kind of a, what I've noticed is it's an afterthought for most, um, bar manufacturers or bike manufacturers, they have this, they have these beautiful, beautifully designed, um, you know, frames. And then because we have all this integration now, the bike companies who have been more geared towards making frames and they don't have the contact point expertise in house, you know, are still, are trying, are trying to take a stab at making, the front end of, of, of these bikes and these arm cups just seem like it was an afterthought. You know, we have, we have, uh, you know, not a lot of surface area. It doesn't really, um, provide stability and support for people. And then you have these kind of foam pads that decompress, they get, you know, the, the Lycra pulls off of them and they look pretty, they look pretty nasty. So I look at the, I look at an arm cup almost as I do a bike saddle. Um, our entire upper body weight is supported on the front end of this bike. And I feel like having, um, you know, really, really focusing on the arm cup is something that is, is very important. And that's what, that's what we did. And we also have a, um, an integrated aero bar. We call the, the monorizer aero bar that we've, um, you know, we've created and we've looked at little details, just even, even the pursuit position when you're not in the, in the arrow bars, you know, does that feel secure? Do you feel locked in? So we put a five degree up tilt on, um, you know, on our, on our pursuit position and had a little radial shaping to it. So you really feel like you can, you can hold on to the, uh, the bars and feel secure on descents or, or crappy roads. 
And we just, we allowed just enough adjustability to where you couldn't do something stupid with it, you know, where people couldn't make a, people couldn't make a bike that doesn't fit them, um, work. So, you know, we limited how much, how much stack you could do to the bar, um, just to make sure that one, it's safe and, you know, people couldn't essentially abuse the, the product. And we don't want to add that range of adjustment just to, just for the sake of, of, of adding range of adjustment. So we offer, you know, you can do steer tube spacing and you can, uh, stack the, uh, the monorizer up to, uh, 65 millimeters in height. And we also added angulation to it, which I think a lot of, a lot of companies, um, really need to be able to be able to angle both the, um, the pads and the extension to allow that upper body and front end relaxation and support that I had talked about. So yeah, the business is going really well. We have some new products that we'll be, um, launching here in the next few, next few months. And we hope to kind of continue to keep growing it and really, really get user feedback on, you know, new products and, and stuff that, um, we might want to do ahead of, you know, moving, moving down the road, because that's who we're really making this stuff for is, um, you know, again, to be the bridge between manufacturing and, and client satisfaction is the goal. That sounds uh, fantastic, and uh, I'm glad that's uh, going as well as it is. It's pretty exciting to see a local company featured on the world stage, uh, like at the Tour de France, the way uh, we have in the last couple of years. Matt Steinmetz is a bike fitter and coach. Uh, he is the owner and operator of 51 Speed Shop. Matt, where can uh, people find more information about how to get a fit and more information about uh, the products you make? Yeah, so to get a fit, um, people can check out mattsteinmetz.com or hit me up personally on Instagram or Facebook, and it's that's just Matt Steinmetz. Um, and then on uh, for 51 Speed Shop, it's 51-speedshop.com, and our social handles are all 5151 Speed Shop. Um, and you know, we try to do the best we can to answer. Um, any consumer questions um, on all of those social platforms and our on our website info at 51 speed shop is our email address all right we'll put all of that information in the show notes uh, for the episode today thanks again matt for being here it was a really interesting conversation yeah thanks for having me And now it's time for the Triathlete Routard, that segment of the show when I'm joined by a fellow traveling triathlete to discuss one of the many destination races on the Ironman and Ironman 70.3 calendars. If you're like me, then you choose your races as an opportunity to see a different part of the country or the world. The Triathlete Routard is here to give you some of the unwritten tips and tricks about some of the more popular races. Today, I'm joined by friend and frequent race traveler Lucy Brash. Lucy came onto the triathlon scene five short years ago and very quickly made her presence felt. She's been on the podium and won her age group in almost every race that she has participated in, and the race that we'll be discussing today is no exception. In 2017, Lucy was third in her age group at the Oceanside 70.3 race in Carlsbad, California, and in 2018, she was fourth after aging up to a more difficult category. She's returning this year to see if she can get onto the top step in just a few short weeks, but today, she's here to discuss all the important things to consider when selecting this iconic and indeed historic race. Welcome, Lucy. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. So... 
when we think about the particulars about Oceanside, this is one of those few races left on the calendar that you got to be on top of because when we think about signing up, it's one that you got to plan early because it does fill up pretty quickly, doesn't it? It does. The, uh, the March World Championships, you need to be pretty on it when the uh, emails come out. If you've got AWA or you're part of a tri club, try and uh, get on and, and, and sign up as soon as you can because I think it typically sells out in a day or two after it opens up to the public. Yeah, the one category that I know remains open longest is the charity slots, uh, either through the Ironman Foundation and occasionally they have paired with charities uh, that allow you to raise money as well. Uh, those slots are not cheap, but they do stay open later if that is something that uh, people want to consider. Otherwise, uh, I know that um, unlike in the past when it would sell out within a week or so, it does stay open, I think, for about a, m- a couple of months, but it, it's still one that does sell out pretty r- routinely. So in terms of getting there, um, where do you fly into? Uh, how do you get yourself up to Carlsbad? So I fly from New York and typically have flown into San Diego, which is a pretty easy flight. It's a pretty large airport, and then it's about an hour drive up to Oceanside. Uh, you can either stay in Oceanside or Carlsbad. Every time I've stayed in Oceanside, and it's worked out pretty pretty well. What about getting your bike there? Did you ship it? Did you uh, use uh, any of the bike transport services? So to Oceanside both times, because it's pretty early, I've just taken my bike with me on the plane. I used the Cycon case, and I had one disaster. Um, so in 2017, I had a bit of a mishap, and my baseball was cracked, and the nice people at Ventum uh, lent me one of their demo bikes and I, I rode that in 2017. In 2018 I thankfully had had no hiccups and the bike arrived safe and sound but they do have tri-bike transport at Oceanside. It's um, it's it's in the expo and then they move the drop-off point to at the at, at T2 uh, so it's pretty easy if you do use it. Yeah and um they have a, a great expo there. I remember a lot of really good exhibitors. I had a problem as well uh, one of the years. Uh, I used tri-bike transport, but when I got there, one of my zip wheels was affected by a recall, and uh, I only noticed the recall while I was there, and the recall was about a, a hub being cracked, and sure enough, my hub was cracked. And because zip was at the expo, they were able to take care of it right there, got me a replacement wheel for the race. And so that's one of the... Uh, uh, Ironman Expos that really has a lot of the top flight uh, producers that are there. It's one that I actually enjoyed uh, visiting. Um, okay, um, any must-see attractions, must-do activities to, to hit before or after the race? So I've always just flown in on late on Thursday night and back out on Sunday, given the, the time of the year, and I'm, I'm pretty busy at work. But I've been around that area a few times now. And there's some really nice things to go see if you, if you have the time. Torrey Pines, for example, is, is really beautiful. Some, some great hikes and, and rides around that area. And then if you have time to go down into to San Diego proper, it's pretty cool seeing the marina and uh, zoos aren't my thing. But I hear the zoo and the aquarium are quite fantastic. And Coronado, of course, uh, beautiful to visit, uh, Gaslight District. San Diego is a really nice city and uh, definitely worth a visit if you have the time. It's one of those races that if you're going with family, there really is a lot to do. 
certainly, I didn't find there was much in the Oceanside area. Uh, something that you won't appreciate, but my children did in the Carlsbad area is Legoland, and uh, that was a big hit with my uh, at the time three year olds. Um, so uh, if you have young children and you're going to this race, that's definitely worth looking into. Otherwise, uh, most of the attractions, as you said, I think are really down uh, towards San Diego. Okay, let's talk about the course itself. Um, now, both of us have done this race when the swim started in the harbor. I know they've made efforts to try and get it back to a beach start, back to its roots when it was an Ironman California race. Um, last year was not successful, I gather, because of surf conditions? Yeah, so last year they tried to put the ocean back into Oceanside, but it appeared that there were, I think there were like four foot waves or something. And there's a limit that Ironman put out there for every race except Superfog, I think. And, and the day before that the, the waves were too high. So we ended up doing the harbor start, which to be honest was, was quite good for me as a weaker swimmer. And I think the same plan is this year. So you know, depending on surf conditions, we'll be doing a beach start, but if they're too high, there won't be a cancelled swim. We'll go back to the uh, harbour swim, which is which is perfectly nice. Yeah, I the, the one thing about the water that I found is I did find it cold. Uh, it's cold in the morning when you're there for the race, and because it's quite chilly, the air. I remember that the water actually didn't feel quite as cold as I had feared, and so with the wetsuit, I actually was pretty comfortable. I don't know if you found the same. Yeah, I thought it was fine. I think it was around maybe in the sixty to sixty-five area, so really not too bad by any means. But it is cold in the morning, as Jeff mentioned. So I would highly recommend bringing some joggers or a puffy jacket or something because it is quite surprising how chilly it gets uh, because the sun isn't up yet yeah i actually uh i keep old sweatshirts from races and stuff and i actually brought one of those and i wore it over my wetsuit until we were getting ready to go in the water and i just disposed of it right there at the start and it's this is the kind of race where it's good to have like a pair of throwaway socks or a pair of throwaway flip-flops or something because you're going to be standing on concrete and your feet can get pretty cold as well um, so you, if, if it's a harbor start, they bring you in by age group and you really don't get much of a warm up. Uh, do you have any idea if they do a beach start, is there going to be a warm up swim area? So uh, they actually, last year they did a rolling start. So it wasn't age group start. Okay. Um, so you just lined up like you have in many of the other 70.3s in the, you know, behind the pace marker that you were planning on swimming at. And it was actually kind of cool. They did have, uh, you could do a little warm-up on the side uh, if you wanted you just to get in and get out. It You didn't really have Scoopta to really swim significantly, but but there was that option, I think. I don't think I got in, though, because it, it seemed cold. Uh, but, yeah, it was rolling, and it was, it was fine. Mm -hmm. And I think it will probably be the same if they do a... They do a beach start, we'll probably walk in behind those little gates and then run in. Okay, so the plan is if it's a beach start, it's a rolling start again? I believe so. Okay, and then um, what I remember also about the swim from the harbor anyways was on the way out, had a little bit of trouble sighting buoys once you got into the open ocean just because of the swells, and then uh, at the turnaround you're really swimming directly back into the sun, and sighting became a bit of a challenge at that point. 
Is that yeah, your I just rem- I don't remember the going out being particularly difficult. But I, coming back, the sun is a hundred percent right there and pretty low. So I'd recommend getting or using some polarized goggles. Um, but it's kind of cool because if you scout out the swim beforehand, you can see all the different boats. Um, and I breathe to my right side, so you can kind of see the boats and remember how far you've got to go, even if you can't see directly in front of you, which is kind of nice. And do you know uh, if they do a beach start, is the swim coming back through the harbor or is the swim coming back to the beach? I think we go back through the harbor. Right, because that would make sense based on where T1 is. Okay, so let's talk about T1. Uh, It's pretty straightforward. I I, I remember there's a bit of a zigzaggy run once you come out of the water to get yourself all the way down to the end of transition and then run through it. It's a large race, so the transition area is quite large. Uh, Any tips for kind of like staking out, you know, where you are because it is such a big transition? Um, I didn't really think too much about it. it. You do have to run up about about 200 meters and then run back and then wherever your spot is. Uh, I just practiced doing, you know, knowing where my spot is, um, just like I would at any any other race. But it's a it's a big transition, but um, I don't think anything to be worried about. And of course, you can't have any balloons or anything, any random objects to highlight where you are. So you kind of just I mean. Commit it to memory. Right. Uh, Okay, let's talk about the bike. The bike course at Oceanside is uh, renowned, uh, both because of its beauty, but also because of its difficulty. It winds its way first up the coast and then inland through Camp Pendleton on roads that normally are closed and are open really just once a year for this race. What are your recollections about uh, this bike course? So it's a really cool bike ride. Uh, The first thing is when you come out of transition, you might be a little bit surprised because you hit this kicker within about 800 meters. So I recommend getting into the the granny gear of champions to to make sure you can actually get up that that And that's important, right? I I, I know the first time I did this race, I don't think I had my shoes properly on. I was in the wrong gear and that hill hits you and if you're not ready for it, you come to a stand, you're walking. Yeah, it's really short. It's just if you're not prepared for it it can be a bit of a surprise i remember i was going to take my gel right at that inopportune point in time <laughs> and it wasn't was really wasn't wasn't the most ideal start to the race uh, but once you get on the road the first kind of couple of miles you go a bit on a bike path which is a bit random and then you go through this gas station which is a bit bumpy and then you enter into to camp pendleton which is super cool because as jeff mentioned the roads are closed um except maybe a few military vehicles and stuff so you can really kind of just have your head down and, and, and get on with it to be honest the the first half of the course i i can't really recall that much i remember it being pretty uneventful there are a few sharp turns there are a few roads that uh, have less than ideal surfaces but most of it is pretty nice and, and smooth rolling and then really the course comes into its own in the second half where there are two major hills, but I think the Ironman labeled them with these little signs last year, uh, signing kind of three hills. And um, the, the final hill, there is a speed trap, so you can't go more than 25 miles an hour down, down that hill. So just something to be aware of and make sure your brakes, if you're using carbon wheels, are fully functioning. Um, the hills themselves are actually like pretty legit. I mean, I was sitting in my, uh, you know, in my, my 28 for sure and, and, and certainly doing anything but spinning, but it's nice because it really separates out the field. So there's not so much drafting as you, as you see in perhaps some, some other courses. And the other cool thing about it is that, um, when you're coming back, 
you, you really kind of have to make sure that you've saved some gas because there's you start getting the headwinds and it really depends on how fast you are but uh, I think you know around kind of 9 30 ish the winds start picking up um on the way back so depending how lucky or how fast you are that can be something to manage um on that last straight before you come back and wind back through the gas station and through the bike path yeah, I want to comment on a few of the things you mentioned because I think they're really important. So uh, the first thing is is that first, like, what, 10 or 15 miles that you're riding along the coast before you get to those hills, when I did the race, it wasn't a rolling start. It was age group starts, and that area was just horrendous for drafting. There would be big packs riding along together. It was pretty terrible, and it wasn't marshaled very well because the road was closed. I'm just wondering, with a rolling start, did you get a sense that that was better Less drafting? I didn't think uh, there was much drafting at Oceanside. Um, I kind of either times I've, I've done it. So I think it, it was it was. Pretty, so then the rolling start, because, you know, that's one of the things I, I really, really like about the rolling start is it does definitely, I think, mitigate the drafting issue. So that's good. Uh, those hills, the thing I'll tell people about the hills all the time is that they psych you out because uh, because of the topography of the of the land and because the you know there doesn't tend to be a lot of you know forest. You just sit at the bottom of that hill, look straight up, and the road just rises straight up above you, and you just see how far you're going on the hill, and it looks much worse than it is. And the fact of the matter is, is everybody's going through it, everybody's pedaling, and as long as you just keep pedaling forward, you, you're going to get to the top of that hill, and you'll be fine. And then last. Lastly, that speed uh, trap, they are absolutely serious about that. Um, the history of that speed trap goes back almost to the beginning of the race when someone died coming down too fast and missed the corner and actually died going around the corner too fast. Um, so they are very, very serious about that speed trap. And people who have gone even like half a mile an hour over the speed have been disqualified. So uh, be sure that you are staying underneath the uh, speed. They have actual radar guns and signs letting you know of your speed. And it is a timed segment. So they use your time across that segment to determine your speed going through. And then the last thing is, is as you said, once you ha- uh, finish all of those hills and you're heading back towards the coast, you're heading almost in through a notch back towards the coast and so the wind can funnel through there and uh, some days the headwinds can be pretty strong so you do want to like you said save some gas uh, to get back there uh, into t2 okay so once you get to t2 it's the same place as t1 was this is one race where it's the same transition spot uh what can you tell us about the run so it's a pretty cool run um when you leave transition you you run out and you go along this kind of little bridge and then you go down closer to the beach. And then thereafter, you are pretty much running uh, along the beach for a bit before you go up uh, the first of, of two steep ramps. Um, then there's a, a big kind of cheer squad area, which is super fun. And, and it's just really nice. There's lots of charity tents and music. And I think there's also like a Red Bull station. Then you go back down a ramp and then um, you kind of t- turn, around, turn around a corner and then you have a slow, modest uphill Um until you get into a neighborhood where there's a little out and back and then you loop back around and, and, and essentially kind of come back in the, the same direction uh, for, for uh, the, the out and back and then you do, do it all again. It's a pretty fast run, I would say, because it's generally pretty flat. Jeff can correct me, but I think it's probably like 250 feet of elevation gain or something. Um, 
the concrete's pretty hard though is one thing I would I would say which kind of sounds a bit dumb but it, it, it is harder than asphalt so so be prepared for that when you're thinking about your your shoe choice uh, make sure your your legs are ready if you're going to think about running in in a racing flat or something make sure you've practiced in it because it is it is that real actual concrete not kind of soft squishy asphalt but it's a pretty um nice run the temperatures are rarely much higher than kind of the 70s which makes it quite pleasant the aid stations are very well well stocked and um, there's quite a lot of sport so it's a, it's a nice run yeah i agree it's a it's a fast run for sure uh, 600 feet of elevation total uh, on the two laps which doesn't seem like that like it doesn't seem like it's that much it seems like a lot less than that um a lot of it is on those ramps, uh, which are pretty steep. So you want to kind of not you know, just charge up those ramps. It's not worth it. You're just not going to make enough time. You're probably going to burn too many matches going up them. Um, but like once you're on either side of those ramps, the any kind of gradient is pretty mild. The one thing I remember is towards the end of the out and back segment each way that you're in this sort of like section of road which is the one time during the race that you're shielded from any kind of breeze and it can get really hot and uncomfortable in that area and I remember that there is a bit of a hill coming back up that way and especially on the second lap uh, I remember that feeling particularly uncomfortable but otherwise like you said the weather's usually pretty good and looking back over the past several years uh, you know there, there was one year, uh, 2015, which is actually the last year I did it, when it was warm, 84 degrees. But for the most part, it tends to be, you know, mid-70s. Uh, it can be cool. Um, uh, there's one year when it actually rained. That was another year that I actually did it. But uh, for the most part, uh, sun, you know, maybe occasional cloud cover, but uh, generally tends to be a very pleasant day without very high winds at all and uh, low, low humidity. So, yeah. So, overall... Uh, you know, thoughts, recommendations about this race? Oh, so it's one of my favorites. I think it's one of the true classics, and it's actually a, a very honest course. Um, for me, it's it's kind of like just a sub five hour course, which is it, which shows to me it's not not that easy. Um, and I I like that about it. There's no drafting. It's a pretty course. It's mostly closed rows, and uh, you can kind of see people on the on the run as well. And it's also just a, a pretty pretty fun place to come and visit. And there's some cool stuff afterwards uh, that you can you can do. Lots of the teams put on um, parties, which is which is fun to go to. And then if you can hang around on on the Sunday because it's a Saturday race which also is is nice because you can go out that night um the challenge athletes foundation normally do a kind of a cool event where you can help um some of the the challenge athletes do some surfing and that sort of stuff and that was something that uh, our Woody Inc team did two years ago and I think they're going to do it this year as well for those that can stay around which is a really nice event um and I think everyone that participated in it found it super super rewarding as well that's great. Uh, Lucy Brash is a uh, top age group performer in uh, 70.3. She's doing her first Ironman this year, and I'm very excited to see how she does at that distance. Thank you so much for joining me today to discuss the uh, Oceanside 70.3 race. And that brings me to the end of another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. If you have feedback or a question for consideration to be answered on the program, 
please email me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit www.tri.coaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services as well as a means to communicate with me directly. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by The Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com where I hope that you will go and visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another listener question for me to answer, an interview with paratriathlete and Paralympian Liz McTurnan, and another episode of the Triathlete Rutile. Until then, train hard, train healthy.